0: Hear the word of God from Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by the sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in God, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to somebody as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, that leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin, and you have become a slave to righteousness. I'm using the example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity, and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now, offer yourself as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin, And you've become slaves of god the benefit that you reap leads to holiness and results in eternal life for the wages of sin it's death but the gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord this is the word of the lord
1: good morning again church family And we continue rather rapidly in our series in the Book of Romans. And I hope you've been getting so much out of our time together in this text. Last week, I preached about the reach of death, the reason for death, and the removal of death. I hope we give you hope that the reason for death and its removal has been seen through by the work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our confidence now. We have no need to fear death because we trust in the one who has conquered it. And today, I want us to talk more about how this conquering of death, how the good news of the gospel compels us to live now. In the first five books of Romans, Paul kind of lays out the gospel story. Tim Keller says this about it. He says the gospel has a theme in it that's unique to all the world religions and all the philosophies of the world. That salvation is received. It's not achieved, it's received not on the basis of your merit or your goodness or anything in you at all. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, my mind goes places where I probably shouldn't go. My mind is just weird like that. It goes to like loopholes or advantages or it's really good when you play sellers of guitar or something like that, but it's not good when you look at theological issues. And where my mind goes with this, is it raises a question in my head, it just kind of pops up. I mean, if it's a free gift, then why change? I mean, if I didn't earn it, then why try to be anything better? Why not be a terrible, selfish person and accept the gift later? Why not, or accept the gift and stay the same terrible person you've always been. Now please, guys, don't judge me for my mind going there. It's just where it goes naturally. I don't control it. Just, it just went there. But I can't be the only one, right? Is there anybody else whose mind goes there too? Okay, good. I'm, some of you are shaking your heads, no. You're like, oh my gosh, you disgust me. Some of you are shaking your heads, yes. Thank you for that. Paul answers this line of question, actually. He actually answers this line of thinking and questioning here in chapter 6. And in doing so, Paul basically shares principles on change that are so important to us. He explains why we shouldn't and can't remain the same as the way we are or were. We need real life change that comes from the real gospel. Tim Keller gleans three keys to real life change from this text, and we're going to use them this morning in our outline of our material today, our outline of what we're going to talk about today. Three keys that Tim Keller says. Here's what they are. Number one, you have to recognize the shape of your spiritual slavery. Two, you have to realize the scope of your unity with Jesus. And then three, you have to live out daily your new identity. So that's, recognize the sheep of your slavery, realize the breadth and scope of your unity of Jesus, and live out daily your new identity. Slavery, unity, identity. So look at these three things. Number one, <clears throat> recognize your spiritual slavery. Verses 15 and 16 says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now when we read this text, one term or word kind of jumps out at us probably. It's the word slaves. It's a shocking word to us, right? It's a shocking word to us, but it wouldn't have been quite as shocking to the original readers. The reason why it seems somewhat shocking to us is when he says, Offer yourselves as slaves. We read it and think of the filter that we have in our modern North American American context. When we think of slavery, we think of the North American slavery. We think of slavery as race-based and for life, of owning human beings based on their race. That is not what is meant by slavery here. This is not what the context of the readers would have understood slavery to be. In the first century, if you're facing lifelong debt, enormous debt, and you didn't want to be settled with it for the rest of your life, it wasn't uncommon for you to actually sell yourself to somebody for a period of time. If you wanted to buy some more farmland, you borrowed money from me, but then your farmland completely failed and you didn't realize, but you owe me this money still, what you might do is you say, okay, I'm just going to sell myself as yourself. I choose you as my master. You're going to be telling me what to do. I'm going to sell myself to you. I'm going to work for you for five years. Then our debt's going to be wiped clean. That person has complete control of your life, but you're choosing that person as your master. So when Paul talks about slavery and masters, the original reader didn't, wasn't quite as shocked by the concept. But then Paul does something really different with it. He takes this concept of slavery and master, he, we underst- they understood it, like, yo, you're choosing a master, but then he takes it to a spiritual realm. Basically, Paul is saying there are <clears throat> two categories of people in the world. People who are obeying God, and are in absolute service to God and people who are spiritually slaves to something else. There's no other category. Paul is kind of working off the first commandment here where it says, "God, you must make God your God and no other gods before him." The same idea of here is either you make God your God or you're making something else your God." There is no third category. Either God is God or something else is. And the idea behind this is that we are all worshipers. Human beings are all worshipers. So we will all worship. So you either worship God or you worship something else. Paul is taking that very exact same idea and expressing it through the use of the word slavery. Paul is saying you're either a worshiper or a slave to God, or you're a worshiper or a slave to something else. The question is is that true? Are you either a slave to righteousness or a slave to something else? Are we all slaves to something? Paul is saying, yes, we are. I believe everybody lives for something. I actually agree with Paul, which I find it to be a good idea to try to agree with Paul, typically. I believe everybody lives for something. And what do I mean by that? I, I, to live for something means everybody has something that is their main way of significance and their main way of security, their main way of feeling valuable or their main way of making their lives worth living for or worth having meaning. Something is their main way. And something is the main way, when well, you get significance and the main way you get security, that could be a career, it could be family, it could be achievement, it could be personal freedom or having people to be dependent on you. It could be power, influence, human approval. It could be a political cause. It could be money. It could be love. It could be physical attractiveness. It could be any number of things, but what Paul is saying is you are going to live for something. There's something that basically makes your life feel like it's meaningful, makes you feel like it's worthwhile. But here's what he says. Here's what you don't know. Whatever that is, it's your spiritual master. It's controlling you. You've offered yourself over to it. You've given yourself over to this thing, whatever it may be. You're under its control. You're being controlled by it. David Paulison, a Christian counselor, groups Things We Worship, into four basic categories. He calls them his four idols. Number one is the idol of power. Some people love influence and recognition. They seek that thing th- through things like money and status because that's how they get more power. And they need power. They need to feel powerful. It gives their life meaning. So they have the idol of power. Two, some people have the idol of control. They want everything to go according to their plan. They want to know that in the future, everything will go according to, to what they wanted to go, the way they needed to go. They don't like uncertainty. And they have to have things happen on their terms and their timetable. If their timetable is thrown off, they become irritable, impatient, even angry. Number three, the idol of approval. Some people crave to be accepted. They can't be happy unless other people are happy with them, admire them, desire them. So criticism is devastating to them. Not being affirmed is devastating. Forgetting feeling like they're not attractive enough or good enough is devastating. Being picked last for the dodgeball team is devastating to them. Sometimes it makes some them cowards. They don't do the right thing, not because they don't know what it is, but because they don't want to deal with the disapproval of friends. So they came in. Four. The idol of pleasure. Some long for physical delights, The good life is sensual delights, sexual pleasure, nice house, best vacations, nice car, good food, creature comforts. And he lists these four idols that kind of rule up, make up what we chase after, makes our life feel important or significant or controllable, something that we want out of life. And what Paul is saying is they rule, they reign you, over you. Verse 12 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And that word reign, to rule, to be a king, shows that when you pursue things other than God, they reign or they rule, they're in charge of, better yet, you are enslaved to them. The last phrase in verse 12 says, evil desires. That comes from a Greek word that's actually kind of difficult to translate. The old King James translated it as lust of the flesh. And that actually isn't a bad translation, but for most of us today, that only means sin revolving around sex and sexuality. But there is this Greek word there called thymia, and it means desires or drive. But the prefix to the word epi makes it mean over-desire or overdrive. This is not talking about desire for bad things. That not evil desires, it's the desires are not evil. It's the, the desire, the overdrive, the overdesire is what makes it evil. There are good things in your life that you've made into ultimate things that control your life because they really are your means of significance or they really are your means of security. You have to have them. Power, guys, listen, is not wrong by itself. Control is not wrong by itself. Approval is not wrong. Pleasure is not wrong. It is this over desire, this need that consumes you, that makes you its slave. That's what we do as humans. We are worshipers and slaves to something, if not God and righteousness, then something else. When it replaces your need for God, when it gives you your worth and your identity, it's an over-desire. It's an over Tim Keller says there's three tests, three kind of epic desires to show you where your spiritual masters really are. Number one is anger. When something blocks you from getting a good thing, it's ups- you get upset. That's normal. That's natural but something blocks you from getting a core, ultimate thing, you get epi-angry, you get over-angry, you snap, you rage, you, you, can't, you can't believe this is happening. The test of anger in your life. Two, the test of worry. If something good in your life is threatening, it's okay to be worried. If your children are in an alligator pit, yeah, it's probably good to be worried about that. Right? That's okay, that's natural. But if something ultimate in your life is threatened, you're paralyzed, or your fear is epi-fear, it's overdrive fear, or you're so anxious that you can't stop thinking about it. That's over-worry, that's over-fear. See, an illustration, if you have kids, it's okay to be worried about your kids, but if you over-worry, that means your kids have replaced God in your life. Sadness. If you lose something good in your life, you grieve and weep. Again, that is normal. Jesus wept. But if you lose something ultimate, you despair. You fall apart. You can't go on. Your life is not worth living. That is another place that you show that you've placed that thing over God in your life, in your heart. These three emotions point to places where something has displaced God as the master of your heart. And I look at myself, guys, and I see where my sin masters can come rearing their ugly heads in me. Guys, I need the approval of other people. That's the sin master that, praise be to God, that I can choose to not make my master any longer, but I can see that ugly sin rearing its head in me. Where a word of rebuke or hurt or criticism from somebody can wreck me. But, thanks be to God, he is my true and real master. I don't have to be enslaved to those things anymore because I'm set free from those things by being enslaved to my master. Guys, do you see what that's talking about here? Is the freest you can ever be. The freest you can ever be is enslaved to God. Because when you're enslaved to everything else, they rule you, they control you. But you can say no to those things when you're enslaved to God by his power. Paul is saying in this text that everybody in the world has spiritual masters. No one in this world is free. You think you're in control, you think you're in your person, you're not. And until you get rid of that illusion, you'll never make the changes in your life you need. If you really think you're in total control, that these things... Are not your master? You completely missed the Book of Romans, right? The Book of Romans early talks about Romans chapter one talks about he gave themselves over to their sinful desires. Over and over again, it talks about this contrast between your sinful desires being masters or God being master. They rule you. Now back to the first question I asked is that loophole question that I was asking about is if it's all about grace and why do God's will why why change why not do my own will. Why not live the way I want to live? Then you forget completely about the naivety of the human heart, guys. When you're not living by God's will, then you're not living by your own will either. You're enslaved fully. You're giving into the sinfulness. You're giving into the core things that you've placed. You're giving into the slavery. So if you're not living in God's will, being changed by God's will in your own heart, then you're ultimately being trapped further and further by the need for approval, or for the need for control. You're trapped further and further by a need for popularity and wealth. And you're more and more and more and so then God says you're literally given over to them. Number two, we need to realize the breadth and scope of your unity with Jesus. If you're going through the resources Christ has given you to change, you have to realize the scope and the breadth of the unity you have with him. Guys, in the first three, uh, in chapter uh, verses three and five, it says this. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is he talking about? And who is he talking about here? What Paul is talking about, he's talking about those who have been baptized. And what does that mean? It means it's just his way of saying those who have been converted. Who are baptized? These are the people who have made the commitment to say, I want to have a relationship with Christ. I commit to making God my, um, my master. It's like kind of like the wedding ring thing. Baptism is like a wedding ceremony. It's like those who say, I commit to you as my wife. That means we have a wedding ring. That's what baptism is. It's this idea of commitment. So when he talks about baptism, he's not talking about super Christians. He's just talking about people who have chosen to give their life to Jesus. People who have become chosen to make God their master and they be slaves to righteousness. And what is true of these people? What Paul is saying, what's true of these people is verse 5, they're united to Jesus. That word united actually is a horticultural term, it's an agricultural term that means we're engrafted into the root. We are engrafted into the root of Jesus. And the metaphor is trying to say that our lives have been inserted into the very roots of his life. What does that mean for us? It means we've been united to the past and future with his death and resurrection. We've been united to the past and future of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' past is not our past. Jesus' future is not our future. And I know that's kind of deep and heavy stuff, but quickly what that means is this, is that it means that we died in him. It says with, with his death and the resurrection, we died in him. Our past is his past. His past is our past. It means a determining factor in your relationship with God is no longer your past. It's no longer your sin. No longer the things that you wish you did but didn't. It's no longer the ways you've messed up. It, but it's Christ's past. The Father dotes on you, accepts you, delights in you, loves you, sees you having all beauty, greatness, and glory of the Son. He sees you as being free of condemnation and free of guilt. And he sees you not only as that, he sees you as the one who actually died for the guilt of others. His past is now your past. We're united to Christ's past. But notice in verse 5 it also says we'll certainly be united in his resurrection. And I love that word. He says, certainly. Not conditionally. He says, you certainly, period. That means there's this connection, this moment when you believe that your future of Jesus Christ now becomes your future. You're connected to him. It's like what happened when me and Gina got married. When we got married, something happened where all of a sudden, it's not my future, my plans. It's not Gina's future, it's Gina's plans. It's now our future, our plans. There's this moment that it, when we're connected to Christ, it's saying we have it's not it's not just life insurance we add on, it's not just get a jail free card that we have in relationship. No, we're uniting to everything, Christ's past, and everything in Christ's future. Remember I asked a question again earlier, They same back to that same old question, the loophole question, why change? Why have a different life? Because we are enslaved to God. And when we're united with Christ's past and future, God takes a hold of our lives and makes something beautiful out of it. He renews creation through your renewed life. It's kind of like this, guys. I want you to understand this. I want you to get this. C.S. Lewis has this image, this idea of what it's like to become a Christian. Is that God comes into your house, right? He comes into your house and you, you like that. You're like, oh, sweet. God, yeah, yeah, come into my house. I have some areas I need some help with. You know, maybe you can help out with the back deck and the porch. I need some work. So God comes into your house. And you're like, sweet. So God's like making, doing some work here. You're like, oh, thank you, God. That's a new bathroom. That looks nice. But then all of a sudden God's like taking out foundational walls and structural walls. He's like, oh, that hurts, God. Don't go there. Woo, what are you doing? That's, that's painful. Let's not go there. I, I didn't want that. But God's like, um, oh, got I work on this? Then he's taking down walls and he's taking out images and pictures that you liked on the wall. He's take, changing colors. He's doing all this kind of stuff in your heart. And you're like, God, that's not what I wanted. That's too much. What are you doing? And what God said, no, no, if I'm here, I'm going to change you because I'm not living in this house. I'm creating for you a mansion. Guys, I want you to understand why change is because you can't help it. When Christ, when the Spirit comes into your heart, when you unite with his past and future, when the Spirit enters into you, he's not staying there just to be like, ooh, this is nice in here. Let me get a little cozy, get a sleeping bag, and kind of circle up, curl up in front of the fire of your heart. No, Spirit's coming in with a sledgehammer. Spirit's coming in with a hammer. He's making something beautiful out of you. And when you're renewed life, he's going to show you a renewed creation. Number three, he calls you to live out your identity daily. Two verses that tell you about that right here is verse six. It says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Your old self, your former self, your identity is crucified. It's past tense. It's perfect. It's done. Your old self is gone. You're not the same person you were when you became a Christian. Can I say that again? You're not the same person. I love the Bible's illustration is you have been given a new heart. You're a new person. Yes, you have all the baggage. Yes, you have a lot of issues. But you're no longer a new person. You're a set free person. You're a new creation. You have a new identity. So it's out of this identity, it's out of this identity that you need to live in every day. It's out of this identity that you need to get rid of the body that was ruled by sin. Now, it doesn't mean that your physical body is sinful. What he's saying is that your body was under the reign of your spiritual masters. It means your life, your actions. Paul is saying, using this idea of talking, that says that your actions, your decisions, was under your old masters, but in the new identity, for you to break into that reality of the new identity, you need to live in it daily. Verse 11 says this, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Who you are is dead to sin, but alive. You need to remind yourself of who you are. Verse 12 says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey to desires. That simply means on one hand, if you're not changing in the ways you need to change, you don't lack any resources to do it if you're a Christian. You have everything you need. Let me say that again. As a Christian, you have everything you need to not let sin reign in your mortal body. Not give in to the the evil masters of sinful desires and lusts and patterns of this world anymore. You have all that you need because you have the Holy Spirit working in your heart. You're not neglecting anything. You have all the resources. The reality is, though, is we forget about it. We forget that. And instead, we forget about who we are. You've forgotten who you are in Jesus. That's the point. That's the key. You need to remember who you are because that's the beginning step in this battle to change. Most of you guys know that I hate snakes, right? Most of you guys know this. Most of you, if you don't know, now you know. Hate snakes. Maybe not as much as my wife, but pretty close. We hate snakes, really do. Even small ones freak me out. And it's a little weird because I don't fear alligators. If I was on a golf course in Florida, I, I played this. There was an alligator in the tee box. I was like, "Oh, I hate gator!" And I hit my ball. Didn't bother me. Gators don't bother me. Eels, they don't bother me. Worms, they don't bother me. Weird stuff in the ocean don't, doesn't scare me. Sharks don't scare me, but snakes get me. One day back when I was a teenager in Florida, I was walking to my house, and I looked down at my front door, and literally right before I walked to the front door, there was a snake curled up on the front step. And I did the usual reaction. I screamed really in a high-pitched voice, ran as fast as I could, and I stood at the end of my driveway staring at the snake. And man, I kept an eye on that bad boy. I th- that guy had to have been like 50 feet long probably more like three feet, but something close to that, right? And it looked evil, I could tell. I mean, it still just looked evil. And the guy wasn't leaving. And I wanted to get into my house, and I wanted to eat some food, I was done with school, I just wanted to go home, but that stick just wasn't leaving. So I did what most rational people would do, I started throwing things at it from a distance. You know, like really far away, like a rock or a stick, I couldn't really, I had really bad aim from that distance, I wasn't getting close enough to throw it well. The stick wasn't moving, wasn't going anywhere. And I'm tired at this point. I knew it wasn't poisonous. I could tell what a wa- I knew what a water moccasin was, it wasn't that. So I knew it wasn't poisonous, but I'm like, I'm not getting anywhere near that thing. Well, my sister went to middle school. At the time, I was in high school. She went to middle school bus. I came an hour later than the high school bus. So finally, she arrives. And she sees me still standing up there with the snake at the, at the end of the driveway, refusing to go near the snake. Now, she's afraid of snakes, too, but she just wouldn't stop making fun of me. She's like, Lawrence, seriously, that thing's like two feet tall, two feet long. You weigh like a hundred million times more than that thing. What are you so scared of? I'm like, well, then you do it. She's like, no, you're the brother. Go do it. And so I'm like, I don't know what to do. And she kept reminding me, like, come on, you're so much stronger than me. But she had a good point. I was bigger than this strong snake, this tiny snake. How is it that my irrational fear of this little thing could make me forget that I was so much bigger, so much stronger, and it was probably more afraid of me? So I had to remind myself, I'm a human being. I'm a human being. Human beings are more powerful than a two foot long snake. I come from a proud group of people that have members like Crocodile Dundee and Sturve an Aaron in it, you know, I was like, these, these guys are part of my identity. That's who I am. I, I'm a human being. That's my identity. So I, I reminded myself and I built up my courage and I grabbed a huge stick, really long one, and I ran up and I scooped it like I would scoop like, like a pooper scooper or like, like a lacrosse ball and I just flung it into the bush, ran to my house and locked the door. My sister was like, wait for me! Because I closed it on her. But, um, it's a long story. But I made it to the house screaming the whole time. I had to remind myself even though it was rational, even though I shouldn't have forgotten that I was stronger, I was a human being, and I'm, we're more powerful in that state. Guys, so often we face against scenarios, and we think these sins in our lives, we think they're, over, they're so big and we have an irrational fear or an irrational inability to face them. Can I tell you, you have to remind yourself of who you are. Sometimes the idea of fighting and conquering our sin masters seems so scary and daunting but you all have this need. We all have this battle that we need to fight. We need to remember who you are. You are a beloved child of God that was purchased at a price, who is united with Christ in his past and future. You are more than conquerors. You are now a slave to God and righteousness. He is your master. In the movie The Black Panther, the Black Panther is fighting a challenger to the throne. During this battle, the Black Panther seemed to be losing or weakening at some point when his mother yells out, show them who you are. The Black Panther responds by showing the enemy that he is the Black Panther. My people, in the midst of difficult times, please hear me. Please hear God. Please hear Paul. Please hear him shout. Show them who you are. In the midst of your sin struggles, show your sin. Show your sin masters who you are. You are followers of Jesus. Salt and light in this world. Co-heirs, more than conquerors, beloved people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, ambassadors and slaves to righteousness. Every day live in that identity. Every day live in that reminder. That is who you are. And when you live in that identity every day, can I tell you that your sin, former sin masters have no sway over you because your new master is so much more powerful. Will you be renewed by the gospel every day to live a life of the gospel, fighting against your sin masters and being a slave to righteousness? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus God, that we are united to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection so that his past is now our past, his future is now our future, that our standing before you is not dependent upon our own skill or our own abilities or our own like, uh, how much we're liked or anything like that, but God, is all dependent on the work of Jesus, so we thank you for that. God, out of your love for us, you've chosen us, that you've captured us, that, you, that you've brought forth us into identity alongside Jesus, we're co-heirs alongside him. God, we thank you. We thank you that you don't leave us alone, God, that the Holy Spirit, as we enter into the relationship, your Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and transforming us and renewing us so that as renewed people, we can be renewing this world. And God, we thank you that, God, that we have all that we need now to live different lives, to say no to our former sin masters and say yes to the master of righteousness, to say yes to being slaves of righteousness. God, may we we live in such a manner because of the truth of the gospel and the light of our identity in Christ.
0: We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.